0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger of the Better Off Podcast. Today on the show, Diana Henriquez. She's the author of A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. The lessons that we learned in 87,
1: which was like a crystal ball crash, it showed us the future. It Mm. showed us where we are right now. It Mm -hmm. showed us where we were going, and it gave us a chance to recalibrate our regulatory arrangements so that something like that would never happen again we muffed it. Mm -hmm. we blew it
0: welcome to the better off podcast I'm your host Jill Schlesinger we're sponsored by Betterment the largest independent online financial advisor today we've got a treat a recidivist guest Diana Henriquez you remember we had her on she was talking about the Wizard of Lies the Madoff book that was made into a movie on HBO well today she is in talking about what I believe is the most interesting account of Black Monday, 30 years ago today, when this drops, the worst day in Wall Street history, 1987, October 19th. Diana Henriquez, the book is called A First Class Catastrophe. You must read it. Diana is able to go back and look at the roots of the 1987 crash and also connect that to the 2008 financial crisis and Great Recession and Diane is such an amazing storyteller no call this week just Diana a first-class catastrophe we're talking about the 30th anniversary of the crash of October 1987 on Wall Street here's my interview with Diana Henriquez you're listening to better off with Jill Schlesinger Diana Henriquez, welcome back to the podcast. What a pleasure to be here. Your book, A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. Hey, Diana, thanks for making me relive like a searing, scorching, painful period in my life and my family's life.
1: Well, let me credit you, Jill, for being one of the few people I've encountered lately who really not only remembers Black Monday, but remembers it accurately. Because for the last three years I've been working on this, I would confront some 40 something on Wall Street and say so Black Monday and I would get this blank stare or I would confront some 60 something on Wall Street and say oh Black Monday and they'd say oh yeah one and done a short little problem very dramatic but no consequences well both of those are just utterly inaccurate
0: and and I think that you we before we got on the air you said that it has a lot to do with like the calendar year that that may have framed reframed that horrible period and we'll get into the horrible period and what's behind it yeah. in a way that uh, maybe played a little trick on our minds
1: I think it did because the market opened in January uh, only a, a slightly lower than it closed in December of 1987 so if you're just looking at January December change you're saying what well, was a big deal but the, the market went crazy in January 1987 in more ways than one, soared up to the August peak of 1987 almost by 40%, if not more, and mm. then, of course, plummeted. So if you're sitting there in the summer of 87 looking at Junior's college fund mm. and feeling really smug and content and safe about about that endeavor, you've got to wait two years before Junior's tuition fund gets back to where it was.
0: Right, and, and also I think that if – You talk to people who have been investors maybe even throughout the 80s what they'll say is oh 1982 to 2000 the longest bull market in you know post-war history right Right. and so this gets pushed into that so that if you look at one of those beautiful mountain charts Mm -hmm. it doesn't look as bad as it was so let's get to first How bad was it? Well, I want to
1: distinguish, Jill, and you'll get this, from a market that falls and a market that falls apart. Those Mm -hmm. are two completely different concepts. Markets go up and markets go down. I got that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Don't have any argument with that. That isn't what happened on Black Monday. It wasn't just that the market fell 508 points, 22.6%, the equivalent of more than 5,000 points in one day today horrifying and terrifying as that would be, that wasn't what made Black Monday so horrible. What made it so horrible is the market almost fell apart under that the strain of that avalanche of selling. And the day after Black Monday, we came as close to breaking our financial system as we ever want to come and managed to save ourselves by the skin of our teeth. So this isn't a story about just a market that goes up and then goes down. It's a market that rises and then almost falls apart, fails to function, closes its doors. So that's the distinction here.
0: There were some warning signals that should have really been going off, and one takes place on the Commodities Exchange of New York, where the Hunt Brothers of Texas were essentially trying to corner the silver market. Oh, they
1: allegedly, we have to say that. All right. All right. They never admitted they were all doing All
0: right. That. So <laughs> let me just tell you a funny story. So when I when I first started trading, which I started in the summer of 1987, just to be clear, as a clerk, I went, I had my own, I started trading on October 1st of 1987. Fabulous timing. I mean, <laughs> and so there were these legendary stories that guys would tell me about the Hunt Brothers. <gasps> and what they would say is the hunt brothers their broker would not be on the floor every day but when he would come to the floor and ask for his trading jacket the silver market would usually go up by 5 6% <laughs> just because the security guard would tell the next security guard who told a clerk who ran to the and everyone would buy in front okay so the hunt brothers were trying to buy a bunch of silver then the, and they that's when silver was at 50 bucks and it it collapsed and and in that collapse they almost took down a couple of banks with them
1: and a couple of brokerage firms
0: and a couple of brokerage firms the second firms.
1: largest brokerage firm on the street triggers you know, the regulatory crisis uh, when its chairman calls Paul Volcker. Now, Volcker doesn't regulate the commodity markets, the silver markets and brokerage firms, but he calls Volcker because the fear that the Hunt brothers are going to default on $6.6 billion hoard of silver at its peak. That's what it was worth. And they had borrowed money collateralized by silver that whose price was now plummeting and at the time this call came in to Paul Volcker, which is where I open my book, I mean, the first-class first catastrophe opens with Volcker getting this call and becoming just infuriated at what's going on. Um, he learns that not only are the Hunt brothers about to default to Wall Street's second-largest brokerage firm, but he's told – A bunch of banks have been lending to them, too. They are speculating with borrowed money, money borrowed from brokerage firms, money borrowed directly from banks. And Volcker says, well, okay, I don't regulate brokerage firms, but I sure as heck regulate banks. And he organizes an ad hoc effort to respond to what feels like a crisis if the price of his silver keeps dropping. These guys are going to go under, and who knows how many firms or banks they're going to pull down with them. That crisis, the day before A Nightmare on the Street, which became known in history as Silver Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, that crisis is where this, this book opens. And I did that for a reason unrelated to the wonderful drama of the Hunt Brothers. It was the first crisis I could find and document in this road to Black Monday, in which what happened in one market did not stay in one market. It was a, a, a contagious crisis, and it was the first time Washington regulators, you know, the people at the SEC, and the, the first time they were confronted with um, a plague coming in from elsewhere, other markets they didn't regulate or in many cases even understand. So when the dust settled and they managed to get through this by lending the Hunt brothers a billion dollars to pay off the other people they owed, money to, and, and therefore preventing collapses, one of the early so-called bailouts, when they got through it, Congressional Oversight Committee called all these regulators before them and said, okay, look, did you work together well enough? Were you well enough coordinated? And the response, Joe, was wonderful, and it showed you where we were mentally in 1980. The response was, well, yeah, we probably weren't cooperative and coordinated well enough. But if this ever were to happen again, not
0: it, that they would,
1: not that it ever would. I mean, this is such a remarkable event to have, a, you know, a crisis in the commodity markets, threaten the banks and threaten the brokerage. But if this were ever to happen again, we'd do better. Well, it happened again and again and again. And the the book in its first two parts unfolds the the crumbling of the firewalls that everyone thought would protect their market from anything that goes wrong in somebody else's market, and by the time we arrive at Black Monday, uh, you've got a you've got a landscape where there are no fire breaks, where a, a brush fire over here is going to run to the other side of the of the world before you can put it out.
0: And I think that this is a a great place for us to talk a little bit about that day, but then also to get into the lessons of that day should have meant that we put things in place to prevent 2008
1: yes it should have it
0: should have so let's just start let's, let's stick a pin in should have first okay so the commodities markets in New York opened at 820 gold opened at 820 the stock market opened at 930 my parents were in Italy with my aunt and uncle traveling having a fine old time because remember in 1987 my father was like living large he was a specialist the firm was making great money everything was fantastic he was an options trader specialist on the American Stock Exchange I did not have a cell phone but I had a beeper remember beepers I remember beepers I had a beeper and my beeper went off at quarter to 8 in the morning and it was my father's partner and I call him up and I say hey George what's up and he's like honey where's your father and I said uh, I think he's like in Florence or something he says okay I need him to get back here right now Wow and I said George what's going on he said I don't think we can open half the stocks in this booth because we have so many sell orders and I tell you what he said do me a favor when you're done at two thirty, come over here I need a hands I wow. need some extra hands so I call my sister up. I'm like, find out where mom and dad are, get them, whatever. So my parents, you know, are in Florence somewhere. They get home, they're getting home. So that now that morning, it's 8:20, the bell rings on the Comex, and we all know that there is a flood of selling going on in the stock market. And in that world at that time, there weren't a lot of ways that people could buy protect ordinary people buy protection. So what they would do is they would buy gold in times of a crisis. Right. So the gold market opened limit up, meaning we had a limit by how much right. we could trade. So we were up 25 bucks, which yeah. was huge. It was a, I'd never seen anything like it. I've worked on trading floors for like three or four summers, but I'd right. never seen anything like this. So the volatility exploded. And all day long, it was just crazed. Now, I was a new trader. I didn't have any positions on. I was like one of those um, middle people. So I stood in a ring. There were brokers at the top of the ring. There were we were standing in the next rung, couple rungs down, and we would just make two sided markets. Mm-hmm. So you would say, "I will buy that contract for a dollar, and I will sell it for two dollars." And at the exact same time, someone would say, "Buy them and sold. So you'd make a thousand dollars in a minute. Right. And I made so much money that day, it was insane. My boss comes over to us. I was working at Spear Leeds in Kellogg, which you mentioned very briefly in the book. Never oh. get on a, the other side of a trade with Peter Kellogg. Everyone right. learns that. They call from the trading desk upstairs at Sphere & Kellogg, and they said they want everyone to go home long gold. Everybody has to go home long. We were supposed to be perfectly hedged, no risk. Everyone's got to go home long. That afternoon, I miscalculate my position, which we used to do by hand and with calculators in our hands. And it
1: was a chaotic day. It was crazy.
0: When I looked at it, I wasn't really long. I was essentially flat. And I got my butt chewed out. I mean, shrieking, yelling, harf, right. like, what the F? What Everyone you think? was
1: pretty much on edge, and even more than usual. Exactly.
0: And then I run over to the American Stock Exchange. I help my dad's firm. It's crazy. It's insane. There are grown men crying. Yep. And at the end of the day, the dust settles. And, you know, as you said, we're down 22%. But it was worse than that in a lot of stocks. Yeah the specialists the guys who were supposed to maintain that fair and orderly market ended up holding tons and tons of stock at you know right. at 10 at 8 at right. 6 at 5 at they 4 they were the
1: buyer of last resort in effect though not by law they were but they became on black monday they they made an effort to stabilize prices by buying there were no other buyers at many times so they were trying to buy in hopes that they could then unload some shares on an uptick but buying and buying and buying and at some point on black monday they were buying on credit and they they knew it and they knew it and at some point on monday every banker lending to wall street got cold feet absolutely and if they had turned off the credit spigot to wall street they could have just turned out the lights and gone home oh yeah and so one of the crises that we had to survive that we didn't know at the time was one of the accidental heroes of black monday jerry corrigan the new york fed president who had, you know, every banker in the country's three vacation home phone numbers, gets on the phone, um, having flown frantically back from Caracas, gets on the phone, and in his inimitable Irish mystic way, starts twisting arms to to make sure that the flow of credit to people like your father's firm uh, didn't dry up because these uh, traders trying to keep the market functioning were so far out on the limb it was leaning on them and they needed to be propped up with the assurance of credit um, it was even worse as you know in the commodity markets because you don't have five days no you to got a day. your trades you've got till tomorrow morning and the chicago mercantile exchange looked at its cash situation on tuesday morning after black monday it was 400 million dollars short of the amount it needed to open its doors, that was because you know money wasn't flowing. People who owed money to it, their counterparty hadn't paid it. The Fed wire through which electronic transfers were made had broken down several hours on Monday from sheer volume. The system was was, was it was, was gummed was, up, absolutely gummed up, and, and you know so. The the guys at the Merck are saying to their bank, you know we're good for it. Your people owe us this money. We just don't have it yet. Um, $400 million. Bill Brodsky and Leo Malamed, two of the accidental heroes in Chicago, knew that if they couldn't open those pits on time, the panic that would hit the institutional world would be unprecedented. So on the phone to a banker at Continental Illinois Bank, they get on a verbal say-so a $400 million loan with three minutes to spare before they have to open their doors. So when I say we had no idea how how bad it was and how close we came to not getting through it, it's experiences like that that, that, that just chilled my blood when I piece them together
0: and you start to think oh my god this is all predicated on individuals standing up not a system that can be put in place or a defense mechanism so on Tuesday morning I get into work and I'm thinking this is just gonna be the worst day in my life because here we are I miss my opportunity gold is called limit down and here's why and here's the interconnected part of this my dad's partner calls me up and says to me we're getting crushed come over here again so I went I'd been there I went there every day for like let's say three weeks after I said what's going on he goes we're going out of business today yeah it looks like we're going out of business yeah. today now my dad had come back so he no. was there and so it he was, was very good he was very smart He goes, I'm not letting you talk to your father right. but I'm telling you we need your help and we could go out of business today but I'm just like I need you to come over here as soon as you can so I'm thinking markets stocks are called down what's going on with gold so I get a call from the place where I work spear leads and they do a lot of clearing for firms that also means they make a lot of margin calls so what happened was a lot of the people who were getting hammered in the stock market actually had some gains In the commodities markets in the metals markets right and so they were forced to sell all of their positions to raise money
1: to cover their margin calls in the stock exactly and that that kind of disconnect across markets through the clearing process became another source of great instability Uh, there was an options clearing firm in Chicago called first options it was owned by Continental Illinois Bank and in the panic of Black Monday it was hit by an old-fashioned run its customers panicked. Many of them were also traded futures. So what was happening in the S&P 500 pit, down 27% on Black Monday. They they just freak out. They want to get their money. They want to get their cash. There were people literally hiring armored cars to pull up to the bank and get their cash Mm -hmm. from this firm. Continental Illinois Bank, the parent of this subsidiary, which clears for almost 50% of the options traders on the Chicago Board Options Exchange, is loaning money to its subsidiary hand over fist to keep it from defaulting on its obligations. The The crazy part, its regulator in Washington was outraged that it was doing this. Because it was,
0: because now you're it, making it,
1: you're a loan in, to your right. subsidiary, it's an insider loan. How dare you make this insider loan? All the other regulators were wa- in Washington. Were saying, "Oh, please, God, keep making those insider mm-hmm. loans and keep the options market from falling to its knees, which it would have done if first options had failed." So the the clearing systems that are very much the behind the scenes plumbing of the financial markets were strained to the the limit. Bill Brodsky, one of the 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 quiet, tireless diplomats of this of the Chicago side of this story. Uh, in the middle of the night, had to confront a situation where uh, one of the uh, Chicago Merck traders had lost a lot of money on the Merck. But he made a lot of money on the CBOE. He'd bet the right way on his options trades. But because of the way the world was worked, they had different regulators, they were different silos, they were on different islands in the marketplace. They could not use the profits on their options trade to cover what they owed on their futures trades, on a handshake with a friend overnight, Bill Brodsky pioneered the first cross-margining agreement in modern markets to save that firm from defaulting on the Merck. So, you know, when I say it was chewing gum and bailing wire and inspiration and improvisation that got us through, that's what I mean. It was smart frightened people who were scrambling working together not preaching ideology at each other not screaming about oh we can't bail these people out but saying we got to get through this mm. we got to join hands lock elbows and get the system through this or we will not have a financial system and one of the things that anybody who studied the 1929 crash understand, understands understands um, including certainly Alan Greenspan, who'd been 10 weeks as Fed chairman on Black Monday, not exactly an experienced regulator. Free market doesn't
0: work so well, huh? Uh,
1: yeah, So he, <laughs> but one thing he did know that you can survive a market crash if it doesn't break your banking system. You can, get, you can recover from a crash much more easily if your financial system doesn't break. Um, and what happened in '29. Obviously, it was after the crash. There was a be- brief bounce in 1930. And then the market fell 90% over the next 18 months. And banks were failing every week. And by the time we got to that nadir, we no longer had a functional financial system mm. anymore. And the depths and duration of the Great Depression, many economists think, is rooted in the fact that we broke our financial system. So the fear in 87 was, I mean, mind you, that crash twice as bad as the worst day of 1929. Mm -hmm. By the time it's down 13%, the people like your dad are saying, we've never been here before. We're falling into history now. Mm -hmm. We have no idea where the bottom is. It's never been this bad. So at that point, the fear that it would break the banking system. And lead to a repeat of the Great Depression was not far-fetched. It was widespread and it is what motivated so many people um, to to step up, to join hands across traditional boundaries and barriers um, to, to try to save the system.
0: This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Diana Henriquez, the author of A First Class Catastrophe, in just a minute. You may want to know that our sponsor, Betterment, now has a free investment review. And I love these because it helps assess your current approach. Now, Betterment, what they do is they'll ask you a series of questions. going to be related to your finances. And then... They'll provide you with an analysis of the investments. It covers four topic areas the accounts, the tax savings, the fees, and the risk exposure. And boy, that is really important. Betterment will give you a clear picture of what you're doing well, how you could improve your investing approach, and perhaps where Betterment might be able to help. No sign up required. Just visit Betterment.com slash off to start your free five-minute investment review today. That's Betterment.com slash off. And now back to our interview with Diana Henriquez. It's sort of weird. It reminds me of, you know, previous crashes. Like in the early 1900s, there was like a banking crisis. And Mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan brings everyone into the room and says, like, boys, we're all going to pay for this. This is a good country, right? Right. And there are different times throughout history where those kinds of events have occurred. And what strikes me is, you know, I only wish my father were alive to hear this interview because he would say in 1987, like those, that month after, mm-hmm. because for them, it really lasted through the end of the year. Yeah. Like you recount the, I guess, the 10 or 12 days after the crash. But, you know, it was really bad. And so what would happen on, the, on a trading floor way back then, 30 years ago, is that, you know, Diana blew out. She's, she just couldn't survive. And then everyone would chip in and say, okay, everyone's going to put five grand into Diana's trading account. We're going to get her back on her feet. Yeah. And that happened a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, people went away. The floor got smaller. But a lot of guys and a tiny bit, few girls, were able to kind of bring themselves back. So now I want to go to 2008 mm. where it's almost the exact same set of circumstances there's different products
1: but the same risks the same landmines uh you've got novel untested financial derivatives okay in 1987 they were these stock index futures contracts they hadn't anticipated the way that would tie these two markets together in 2008 credit default swaps not only did they not understand how these derivatives shackled all of Wall Street together but they didn't even they couldn't even count those Mm -hmm. at least in 87 they knew what the exposure to S&P 500 futures were because they were traded on a public exchange credit default swaps were not and it's interesting how early the fight to regulate swaps began it began before Black Monday oh yeah and might have succeeded but for the political aftermath of Black Monday Um, so yes we've got untested financial derivatives traded viral levels by tightened, supersized, too-big-to-fail investors, and working across regulatory boundaries to move money at breakneck pace from one market to another. And that's exactly what happened in 87. I can't tell you how many people I talked to, frontline responders, Nick Brady, who chaired the Brady Commission, which did a blue-ribbon study of the crash, and Jerry Corrigan, the New York Fed chief who got through it, um, countless other people who were on trading desks, would spontaneously say to me when I sat down to talk with them about Monday, he said, you know, there's a direct line. You can draw a direct line between 1987 and 2008. And the first time that was said to me by Jerry Corrigan, I said, what do you mean? And he starts ticking these similarities off. The lessons that we learned in 87, which was like a crystal ball crash. It showed us the future. It Mm -hmm. showed us where we are right now. It Mm -hmm. showed us where we were going. And it gave us a chance to respond, to recalibrate our regulatory arrangements so that something like that would never happen again. We muffed it. Mm -hmm. we blew it you know the market we didn't have a great depression we didn't have a recession except in New York where of course tens of thousands of people lost their jobs on Wall Street and that had very localized and severe responses but so that great you know market amnesia you know that compels us to forget and therefore repeat our disasters quickly stepped in fast forward a decade we've got the Asian contagion crisis Another worldwide crisis triggered by unfamiliar, untested financial derivatives being used at a viral level by too-big-to-fail investors, baffling a balkanized regulatory system. Fast forward to 2008, exactly the same risk factors, but at an exponentially more dangerous
0: level but in 1998 when long-term capital management failed and it spurred all that you know craziness in the emerging markets it did seem like there was uh, sort of like the big banks got together and said okay we're not gonna let this happen well not voluntarily I they know, were I, know pulled I know
1: together by uh, by
0: bank regulators right and they said like we're not gonna let this happen talk about in 2008 that doesn't happen I mean that's where you get into that frightening moment where I get a phone call from somebody in September of 2008 who says I am on the trading floor of and this was five different calls from five different huge investment banks and it's silent Oh, a trading floor is never supposed to be silent
1: I know and there's a moment in 87 when it was and it is one of the it's frightening. it's one of the eye of the hurricane moments that's just terrifying there was a run on the money market industry Therefore, there was a dearth of commercial paper buyers for some of the bluest chipped American companies who couldn't sell the commercial paper with which they would pay payroll next week. So the real economy aftershocks were spreading faster than anyone could imagine. And so once again, we pull a serendipitous ad hoc improvisation, and the chairman of the Federal Reserve. A normally mild-mannered reporter, you know, sort of like Clark Kent, takes off his suit and becomes Ben Bernanke, the super Fed, um, the fed- Federal Reserve Chairman, and the completely surprising Treasury Secretary. I knew Hank uh, uh, Hank Paulson when he was co-chair of Goldman Sachs, and I always tell people if you have trouble sleeping, just read one of Hank's speeches because he was the you know the least inspiring <laughs> one of the one of the least dynamic people. They both rose to the occasion and figured out ways to rescue an insurance giant that neither one of them regulated, Mm -hmm. and then a way to uh, stop a run on money market funds that neither one of them regulated. Funds were regulated by the SEC. Insurance regulators, as you know, are regulated by 50 regulators in 50 states. So. They pushed their authority to the limit, and in a few later lawsuits, they alleged over the limit to save the system. And that kind of ad hoc, you know, seat of your pants, wing and a prayer kind of solutions got us through 2008. It got us through 1987 without breaking the system. And your reward for doing that is to be told, don't ever do that again. Mm-hmm. The the worrisome uh, constraints in Dodd Frank, and there's been a lot of conversation. You've done a lot of, it, I know, and, and studied a lot of it about. You know, we got to repeal and replace Dodd Frank. We got to repeal Well, one of the worrisome things about Dodd Frank is the components of it that pretend number one that you can write a rule book for the next financial crisis. Well, I got news for you. This whole idea of identifying. You know, systemically important firms and setting a new
0: ro- rulebook for them.
1: No one would have picked first options as a systemically important firm, and in no Chicago. one thought
0: Lehman Brothers was the systemically important Absolutely. one. Absolutely.
1: So you are not going to guess right about where the fault lines are, and then to tie your regulators' hands so tightly that they cannot undertake these, you know, ten minutes till midnight, um, desperate measures that
0: get the system through
1: is just insane.
0: And I think that it's baloney anyway, because I think that there's a break the glass moment where they're going to blow through the rules.
1: Well, I hope that we will be blessed on whenever the next crisis day is. And they don't send the save the date card. No, they don't. So whatever it is, I hope that we will be blessed with leaders who are willing to break the glass, break the law, rather than let the system break apart.
0: What has to happen in the Diana B. Henriquez prescription? What has to happen to really secure the system right now?
1: Well, one of the big things that has to happen, and I deal with this in the epilogue in First Class Catastrophe, is we have to be honest with ourselves about what the market is, how it works today. This is not your mom and pop's market anymore. This is an algorithm-driven market of titanic-sized investors um, pursuing arcane uh, uh, strategies for profit that our regulatory structure barely understands. We've got to raise the technology expertise in our regulatory community. And we've got to unify the response. After Black Monday, the Brady Commission's premier recommendation was... Since it is all one market now, a unified market where big guys trade everything all the time, we need one market regulator. Right. That can see the whole 360-degree picture and respond. Wherever the brush fire breaks out, get there before it spreads everywhere else. That's what we've got to have. That flew nowhere. And,
0: you know, what's interesting is that other countries have more of that kind of regime, right? In Great Britain, you have uh, an institution that kind of looks at the the, sort of the big banks and then the guys who do the brokers. Yes.
1: And uh, virtually every modern developed country, you have a central banker and you have a financial regulator. And the, and the, the two roles in our country are filled by a central banker, and I swear to goodness, 150 financial regulators. By the time you've got the state banking commissioners, the state insurance commissioners, the state securities commissioners, six banking regulators in Washington. Uh, Don't get me started. So we don't have, to this day, a unified regulatory response. And you know what happened after 2008? Congressional hearings were held. Republican John Snow, former Treasury Secretary for George Bush, And Republican Chris Cox, at the time, the chairman of the SEC, testified before Congress. And, Jill, I almost could have cut their words out and pasted them into the Brady Commission report of 1987. Mm. Almost exactly the same. They testified, our regulatory system is too fragmented. It's too balkanized. Nobody has a 360-degree view. And we have to fix that. That was 2008 we haven't done a thing. We're still trying to regulate a 21st century market with an early 20th century regulatory machine. The notion that you can tinker with Dodd-Frank, you can pull this part out, what, we need to just wipe the whiteboard clean and look at what kind of regulatory machinery we need for a fragile, high-speed, highly institutionalized unified marketplace and build one. It's a Blue Ribbon Commission problem. It's It requires a level of bipartisan cooperation and trust of expertise that h- harkens back to the dark ages of Washington, but that's what we need.
0: We react to these things in the moment yes. and then don't do anything don't about it. don't do anything, it, yes. Right, and so...
1: Because I, if we don't, you know, it's it's the craziest thing. If you are saved at the brink of the cliff... When you can look over and see how far you're going to fall you're saved at the brink of the cliff and you probably say well you know nothing bad happened i didn't go over the cliff no you didn't but for heaven's sakes jill if if we have to topple our financial system before any meaningful reform can happen and that's what happened in 1929 to 1931 we broke the system so when roosevelt came in in 1932 he had to build from scratch because the, the system was in rubble. Even so, he was fought tooth and nail by Wall Street um, in his efforts to regulate it and to regulate the banks. But he at least was dealing with a legislature and a population who had looked into the abyss and fallen into it. Now, we looked into the abyss in 87 and by the skin of our teeth got pulled back. We looked into it again, leaning even further over in 2008 and got saved by the skin of our teeth. I just hate to think that the only way we're going to muster the political will to address these 30-year-old problems is if we fall into the abyss and have to start from scratch.
0: Diana Henriquez, you're awesome. You are the best. Uh, everyone should go buy this book. A First Class Catastrophe, The Road to Black Monday, The Worst Day in Wall Street History. And of course, you know that Diana is the New York Times bestselling author and star <laughs> and HBO star. She wrote the book called Wizard of Lies about Bernie Madoff. And uh, we had her, if you, ha- if you missed her last appearance on the pod, you got to listen to it because the whole story about <laughs> you auditioning is like one of my favorites thank you for writing this book you did bring me back to a time that was not particularly pleasant but it was history yeah I do remember my dad saying to me um, at the end of that first week that you will never forget this and I never want you to forget this this will make you a better trader and three years later I said I've had enough of this trading thing this is agonizing yeah. it's just horrible it is it's fun but yeah. it's just a tough business. It
1: is a very tough business. As John Phelan says in, in the book, he says, if you think you're really smart, try trading the market for a while.
0: Yeah, no kidding. It's
1: a tough, tough business. And and the people who are in that business, people like your dad, people like your uncle, on that day and the day after, so many of them put the public good ahead of their personal crisis just to show up on the trading for on Black Tuesday, the day after Black Monday, took just pure grit and courage. So I, my, my heart, I want to just, in a way, kind of um, command all of the unnamed heroes of Black Monday who helped us get through.
0: I thank you for writing the book. It's a wonderful way to look at history, but also to bring it to where we are today. And I think that's the most important takeaway, that if we continue to repeat these patterns, it will not end well.
1: I agree with you. I mean, the only antidote to repeating your mistakes is to learn what they were.
0: Diana Henriquez, a first-class broad who wrote A First-Class Catastrophe. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thank you, Jill. Thanks again to Diana Henriquez. The more books she writes, the more she'll come on the show. We're just going to have her on no matter what. She's fantastic. Thanks to Diana, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag betteroff. You can also reach me via email. AskJill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's AskJill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark D'Alessio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.